we get a phone call and Mark comes into my office and he asks me a question. He says, do you know of a man named Al? And I think about it and it's brought to mind that we had served two different people during our second Saturday ministry named Al. And so I said, yeah, I think, I think we've served a guy named Al before. And so we began to look into it, and sure enough, there was uh, a man named Al that we had been serving for a couple years. Many of you that have been a part of Second Saturdays will remember this. It was Al and Vanita. We'd gone over to their house many times um, to, to work on their yard, to do some uh, projects with their bathroom, and uh, all, all types of things over the course of the years. And um, Mark said to me, his family is called, and they've asked us if we would be willing to do their funeral Apparently, Al left very specific instructions that he wanted our church to be the ones to, to, to come and to do this. And um, I know that hearing that at first may not be very significant to you guys, but Al early on in his life had been a deacon in a church in the area, and then he had gone through a long period where he was not a part of church and over the course of the last few years, God had opened a door for us to come into Al's life and to be an encouragement to him and to be able to serve him. And so to hear him say that there was this church in the community of these young punks that he wanted to come and to do his funeral was a pretty cool thing. And so Mark had the opportunity to go and to preach Al's funeral today to 25 different family members that had come, most of them being non-believers and Mark had the opportunity to share the gospel with their family. So that was the first beautiful thing that came out of this, was another opportunity for us to be a gospel light in the city of St. Charles. But another beautiful thing, their family actually took together some money. A few of the siblings had um, decided that they wanted to give an honorarium to the church, Matthias Lot, and so they gave us almost $1,000 to this church because of what they felt like we did in the life of their father. Now, I don't tell you that story, and, and we definitely didn't go over and serve him because we were looking for something in return. But as Mark told me the other day and reminded me of this afresh, isn't it beautiful how God blesses obedience? You know, when you love people, God blesses that. And as I was just even looking at these words up here for the first time, we just did this. God is love. If we expect this community and we hope and we pray that they would know God, they must know love. And that's why this church is here. Um, if tonight is your first night, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the four uh, current pastors at Matthias Lot. And tonight, I'm going to be preaching on a text, and if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and encourage you to turn there. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're going to cover a whole two verses tonight. I'm really plugging along, aren't we? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. By the time we get to the end, you'll be glad that I only took on two verses because we'd be here for a really long time. Tonight, I want you to know as I get started that there are passages that we will come to and there will, sermons, there will be sermons that we will preach that I think will especially resonate with us because of different passions. But tonight, this message for me, if God were to take me home tomorrow, or if he were to send me on to another ministry and I would no longer be a pastor at this church, this is a message that I would want you to remember. Not because I have anything clever or fancy to say, not because I think that I've done something spectacular here and by the end of the night I'm going to get you, you know, and you're going to be like, whoa, that was cool. No, none of that. It's because in these two verses, I believe that John beautifully 
portrays sinful man and a righteous God who loves people. It's the picture of the gospel. And so tonight, we're going to dig into the gospel and see what John has to say here in this epistle of 1 John. Let's read that passage, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. God, I'm humbled um, to have an opportunity to be able to preach this word. God, it's big. Father, you and I both know that I don't have the expertise, the education, or the training to be able to speak this correctly. So God, I pray that you would. God, I pray that you would take a scattered mind and a scattered brain. God, that you would just speak through the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts tonight. God, through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate your word, that you would open up hearts of sinners. God, that you would rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, that you would shape us and mold us in the realm of our theology where it's bunk and it's wrong. God, I pray tonight that when we walk away from this place, all we would be able to say is you're good, you're magnificent, you're holy, you're righteous, You're wrathful and you're just. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, there's four questions that we are going to ask as we move through the passage. And you'll see those there on the the side where your notes are. Those questions are, who are we? Who is he? What has he done? And what hasn't he done? So as we get into the first question, we're going to start with who are we? Verse 1a. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now right off the bat, in these first words, my little children, I think it's interesting that John continues here with this type of verbiage. My little children. And I think there's three reasons why he starts this way. First of all, if you'll remember, as Mark has laid a beautiful foundation for this passage as he has been moving through the first chapter of 1 John, he had said that this man, John, is an older man now. He's probably well into his 50s or 60s. He's developed some old man power, right? He's got some wisdom. He's been through a lot of experiences. He's one of the only disciples to not die as a martyr. And so as he begins this part of the text. He's able to say, my little children, first of all, because he's an older man. I would compare it to you this way. Think about this for a moment. If I came up to one of you, especially you men, and I said, hello, my little son, you would look at me and you'd be like, dude, you're a punk. You, you can't talk to me like that. No, why can't I talk to you like that? Well, It's not because maybe you don't respect me and I don't respect you. It's because I'm 28 years old, you know? I have not lived enough life to call any of you my little children, especially those of you that are like in your 30s and 40s. You would just like beam me in the head, you know? And you should. But if Billy Graham walked up into the room, all right, 
and he called any of us little children, we would say, yes, daddy. You know what I mean? Now, in part, yes, because Billy Graham in, in our generation is a huge spiritual leader and we have developed a ton of respect for him the same way that these readers would have had a respect for John. But the other reason is because Billy Graham is an older guy and he has the ability to call us his children because he's, he's an older man. So you have to see it, first of all, that way, that he has the ability to call them that because he's a grandpa. If your grandpa came in the room and he called you his child, you would, you would listen. If I called you my child, you would not like it, right? So see that distinction. The second reason that I think that he's able to, to begin the letter this way is because John has a ton of love for these churches in Asia Minor that he is writing to right now. The whole reason that he's writing this letter in the first place is because he's combating this view of Gnosticism. He's saying that this theology that has begun to infiltrate your church, that believing that Jesus Christ is not fully man and at the same time fully God, God incarnate, that is an incorrect view of Jesus. And so he's writing this letter to try to convince them of who Jesus is. And in light of who Jesus is, who they should be. The whole purpose of his letter is being written in love. A few years ago, I heard that a church that I had formerly pastored was going through some struggles. And as soon as I heard about the struggles that were going on, I decided that I would go and I would be a part of one of those, those churches' services. Not because I felt like I had to, but because I loved those people and I wanted them to be encouraged. John is writing this letter because he loves them and he wants to encourage them. So he says, my beloved children or my little children. The third reason why I believe that he begins this part of the letter this way is because he has something very, very important to say to them. And to help you to understand this, I want to tell you a little analogy now, we have some rules at my house. We actually have 12 rules that sit on our refrigerator, and we need to start adding some more rules to them. <laughs> and some of you parents are like, yes, I know exactly what you mean. One of the rules that we have on our fridge is that none of our children are allowed to stand on the furniture. Why can't our children stand on the furniture? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not good for the life of your furniture. You know, I don't think that that's covered in the warranty. <laughs> Second thing is because it's not good for the life of our kids. I cannot tell you how many busted heads we've already had. I think Benjamin has already had stitches three times. He's well on the way to catching up with me, which is a total of ten. You know, he's, he's catching up. So we have this rule that our kids are not allowed to stand on our furniture. Now, come with me for a moment. I walk into the room and I see Benjamin standing on the couch. Now, what I would do is I would come to him and I would say, Benjamin, I need to talk to you for a moment. What are you doing? He would look up at me and I'd say, I'm standing on the couch. That's right. You are standing on the couch. Why are you standing on the couch? Uh, because I want to. Okay. Benjamin, is standing on the couch wrong? Yes, Daddy, it's wrong. Have I told you that you're not allowed to stand on the couch, Benjamin? Yes. Benjamin... Have you disobeyed Daddy? Yes. Benjamin, why did you disobey Daddy? Because I have a black heart. <laughs> That's exactly what he'd say. And I would say, Benjamin, you're right. Your heart is sinful. 
That's why you disobey daddy. But Benjamin, just because your heart is black and because it's sinful does not negate the fact that God has called me to be your father and to discipline you when you disobey. And so then, then, this is what I would say. I would look down at my son, and I've done this hundreds of times. I would say, Benjamin, your daddy loves you so much. Because I do. I want him to know that. And then I would say, and because I love you, I have to give you a spanking. You see, discipline always comes in love. Those that don't love, don't discipline. Those that don't discipline, don't love. And so as I say that to him, I want him to know the fullness of my love so I can speak to him harshly. And so I can discipline Right now, follow this. John is speaking love. He says, my little children. This is the only time that he uses the word my before he says little children. And he says little children repeatedly, not only in John, but in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But this time he says my little children because he wants to speak over affection to them. He wants them to know how much I love you before he says the next phrase. Because they're about to get a spanking. And this is what he says. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, I've had a lot of time, thankfully this week, to be able to prepare this message. Our church is very generous in allowing Mark and I to be full-time and to be able to dedicate our time to being able to study the Word, and to being able to preach. And in the time that I have had to be able to look at the Greek text, and the times that I've had to be able to look at every single commentary that we can possibly get our hands on, that we prepare with, I've gotten to listen to tons of different pastors that I deeply respect teach this text. And can I tell you what they're saying about what John says right here? It's amazing, all right? It's, it's so crazy. You would never see it in the text. Read it again. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Do you know what they're all saying? Don't sin. Don't sin. That is exactly what John is saying. Now, aren't you guys glad you paid me all week to figure that out? Isn't that awesome? Don't sin. That's exactly what he's saying. Why does he have to say that? As I was thinking about this moment, I could not help but laugh. Because he says it so clearly and so directly. It reminded me of a, of a skit. Any of you used to watch Mad TV? I think it's off now. Hopefully you didn't watch all of it. Some of them probably weren't very good. But there was a skit on Mad TV a while back, and it was with a guy named Bob Newhart. And in this skit, what happens? You have to follow me here for a second. He's supposed to be a counselor. And into his office walks this young woman, and he sits down with her and he says, here's the deal. This is how my rates work. It's going to cost you $5 for the first five minutes. After that, the session is free. So she looks at him and she's like, wow, 
that's, that's almost too good to be true. And then he says, well, most sessions don't ever go past five minutes. And so she's, you know, she's kind of confused, you can tell. And then he sits down behind his chair and he looks at her and he says, all right, go. And so she has to begin to tell him exactly what's, what she's struggling with. And so as she begins, she says, well, there's this thing that, that's really been bothering me. I have this horrible phobia of being buried alive in a box. And so he looks at her and he says, go on. And so she keeps talking more and more for about a total of a minute. And then finally, he comes to the conclusion. He says, so what you're telling me is that you're claustrophobic, right? And she says, yeah, I I guess that is what I'm telling you. And so then he looks at her and he says, okay, okay, are you ready? Sonia's laughing because she's a counselor. Martha is too. He said, no, here. He says, are you ready? And she's like, uh, yeah. And he says, I've got two words for you. And she goes, should, should I take them down? Should I write them down with a pen and a piece of paper? And he says, well, it's two words. Most people can remember. And she goes, okay. And so then he looks at her and he says, stop it. Stop it. And the whole time she keeps saying, well, what about this? What about this? Stop it. Stop it. Sometimes, like, I, I'm sure that counselors just have to get it in them where they just want to say, stop. You know, why are you thinking that way? Why, why are you feeling that way? That's so inaccurate. That's not even true. Now, I know counseling is way deeper than that, and so I'm not trying to minimize it. But isn't there times, seriously, where we just want to look at people and say, stop it. I am convinced after this week that there are more times in the church where we need to look at our brothers and our sisters in love. And we need to say, stop it. Do not sin. I'm Matthias Lott. As Mark had already mentioned earlier, one of the values that we have in this church is accountability. We believe that all of our covenant members should be in accountable relationships. That means one person meeting with another person, being honest about their sin, talking about the struggles that they are experiencing in life, and not only struggles, but the joys. And in those circles, Mark has taught on this before, but he has said that we do not want to be a church that's just coddling each other making each other feel okay about the sins that we're struggling with. Sin is a big issue, especially in the culture that we live in today, where so many people are beginning to embrace sin. And so in our accountability groups, we need to be honest about our need to stop sinning. Your accountability partner comes to you, and he says, I'm really struggling at work because right now work is so slow. And so every day I I get there and I I go ahead and make a few calls that I need to make and and I check the reports that I need to look at, but then there's just nothing for me to to do. And so I I, I typically get on MySpace and I spend a few hours on there. I get on Facebook. I get on ESPN.com and I check out the the stats and and all that. And I mean, right now I'm probably only giving about 50% to my employer. Stop it. That's sin. You know why it's sin? Because your employer is paying you to work for them. 
even if they know, I believe that Christians should be above reproach. If you have an occupation where there's temptations for you to do other things other than work for your employer, go and clean the toilets. Go make your boss coffee. Find something to do so that you can be blessing your company because they are blessing you financially with giving you an income. Christians need to be the example in the workplace. Stop it. Stop wasting your employer's money and stop wasting their time. Maybe here right now, you're a Christian that that believes in Christian liberties. And so there's times where you go out with your friends and you have a beer or you have a glass of wine. We're not going to condemn you for that. We're not going to rebuke you. We believe that there are some things that are okay in moderation. And so when you're with your friends, it's, it's cool. It's, it's, you know, we have these Christian liberties. And this is awesome. We can go and we can have a, a Guinness at the bar and we can hang out and, and I can go home and I can read my Bible and God's not going to strike me dead. Here's the thing. If you go home and then you've got another six-pack in your fridge and while your friends think that it's cool, you're going, down, you're going home and you're pounding down a few, stop it. If you are struggling with drunkenness, stop it. That is sin. You need to confess it. To those that you love, you need to tell your accountability partner. If you don't have an accountability partner, you need to get one and you need to tell them that when nobody is looking, you're pounding beers and you're getting drunk. God not only sees what's in your hand, but He sees what's in your heart. Even when we're not around, God sees in its sin. So, you're a wife. And you've got some very good friends that you've been observing their relationship. And what you've seen is that the husband of this friend that you know is a good husband. Straight up. He loves God. He loves his children. And there are many times where he's taking his spouse out on a date night. And over the course of time, you've become very envious of that relationship. In fact, there are times in your heart, in your heart of hearts where nobody else sees, that you are actually coveting your friend's husband. Because he's attractive. Because he's smart. But more than any of that, because he's giving his wife a relationship. If you are coveting your friend's husband, stop it. That's sin. That's coveting. It's being envious. We need to stop sinning. Your wife's pregnant. And most of us know when, whenever our wives are, are going through that season of life, sexual interactions are much less. And so while she's been pregnant, you've, you've been struggling. So when she's not around, you're downloading porn, you're hiding in the closet so you can look at it where she can't see you. She finds out, but then you say, well, honey, you know, I, I'm just struggling because we're not being intimate like we were before because you're going through this time in your life. I know it's, it's just for a season, but is this okay? It's not okay. Stop it. That's sin. God has called us to live righteously. Maybe you're not married, but you're here. You're a student from Lindenwood. You're a student from another college. You're in high school. Last night, you had sex with your boyfriend. 
stop it. That's sin. God has called us to live righteously. You want to know what sin is? It's beautifully defined here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Check this out. If you just turn over once, and we're going to have this on the screen. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. A beautiful definition that comes by John in the book of 1 John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Whenever we engage in sin, we're committing treason against God. We are breaking His moral law. Now why is this a problem? If you remember last week in the message, Mark talked about God being light. And in Him there is no darkness. When we are in the darkness, it's scary. We knock into things. We get hurt. We feel lonely. We feel alone. Whenever your accountability partner looks at you and they say, stop it, it's because they love you. They don't want you to be in the dark. They don't want you to be lonely. They don't want you to be fearful. When are Christians going to begin to love each other like that? Now, I'm not saying that it's that simple. I know that the next statement that needs to be is that I'm going to pray for you. How can I hold you accountable? When can I call you whenever you're having these temptations so we can work through it? It's not just as simple as saying, stop it. But to stop it is necessary. Some of you are in accountability relationships right now where you talk about sin and it's like you just pat each other on the back. God has called us to live above reproach. That is the process of sanctification. Mark challenged us last week that are we just a community of people that are desiring justification, being forgiven from our sins, being washed by the blood of Christ, or are we desiring sanctification? Sanctification being the process where we are becoming more like Christ and we're becoming holy. Fleeing from sin in obedience through faith is the sanctification process. So if there are hidden sins in your life that nobody knows about, they are part of what is preventing you from that continuing journey of sanctification in honoring God in your life. Are any of us going to be completely perfect this side of heaven? Is there ever going to be a day where we have completely broken away from sin and we're not struggling? I don't believe so on this side of heaven. But at the same time, does that mean that God's moral law should be lowered? To give you an analogy, did your soccer coach ever say, try to make 90% of your shots? No. Try to make 100% of your shots. Did your choir teacher ever look at you and say, try to hit most of your notes? No. Hit all of your notes. Because when you hit all of your notes, it's beautiful. If God said, you can sin 50% of the time, then people would sin 50% of the time. Right? His moral law has to be 100%. Will we fail sometimes? Yes. But what are we striving for? Holiness. We're striving for holiness. That is the continued work of sanctification going on here. First question, who are we? We are sinners. That's who we are. Second question, 
Who is he? Let's pick up there, verse 1b. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So continuing on, if, if any of you have been struggling with the fact that you're, you're looking at John's epistle and you're saying, man, he is really harsh on, on sin. It almost sounds like he's expecting people to be perfect. Please look at this and please see what he's saying. He says, if anyone does sin, and he's speaking here to Christians, he knows that there are going to be times where we become lawless and we break God's moral code. But when we do, he's giving us great hope and he's giving us great encouragement. If I just came to everybody tonight and I said, do not sin, and then I walked out of the room, I said, have a good week, I would give you no hope. That would be horrible. So here is the hope for Christians who are struggling and we're wrestling with sin. And for non-Christians who are listening to this message, here is the hope that you have when you have faith in Christ. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate. What does that word mean? To be an advocate means that you stand in the place of someone else in their defense. How many of you have ever had uh, a ticket for speeding? Okay, let me ask that again. How many of you have ever had a ticket for speeding? Yes, that's right. All five of you answered the first time, and then everybody answered the second time, right? We just talked about that. Be honest about your sin. So, whenever you get a ticket, there's a way that you can pay a lawyer, and the lawyer will go to court for you. When he's there at court, and he is defending your case, in a sense, he has become your advocate. You don't even have to show up to court because he's gone there in your place to defend your case for you while you're sitting at home. Now, you hope that he's representing you well, but he is representing you. When John calls Jesus here our advocate, our righteous advocate, there is so much meaning behind that word. And the only way that I feel like I can portray this for you tonight is to bring you into the picture of what this courtroom might be. You see, it's a heavenly courtroom and there's God standing in the seat of the judge, God the Father, and there we are standing before the judge. And then to the side of us, there's Christ. And then to the other side of us is the deceiver. And as we stand there before God the Father, all of the transgressions of our life, all the lawlessness of our life is laid there before Him in full view. He sees it all. And so as Jesus stands there as our advocate, He stands up. And God looks at Jesus, the Father, and He says, how do you plead? And Jesus looks at the Father. Now again, get this picture. He looks at the Father and He says, Dad, this person is guilty. 
They're not guilty just of, of a few things. They're guilty of many things. From the moment they are born to the moment that they entered into this courtroom, they have been full of sin, full of wretchedness, full of sexual immorality, full of adultery. There's all types of things that they are guilty of. So, what's the sentence? The sentence should be death. It should be judgment. And so the gavel strikes. But then Jesus says, may I approach the bench? So Jesus walks up to the Father. And as He walks up, He says, Dad, I've got this one. And as He says those words, it's like He pulls out a portfolio of photos. And in that portfolio, there's pictures of Golgotha. There's pictures of the cross. There's pictures of the sacrifice that he made for you and I. The moment where the crown of thorns was put on his head. The moment where his nails were, where his hands were nailed into the cross. And as God looks down at those photos And he hears the pleading of his son, Jesus, saying, this one's mine. He looks up, he strikes the gavel again, and he says, guilty as charged. But your penalty has been paid. Christ is our advocate. He goes before the throne of God, but instead of being like a defense lawyer, where a defense lawyer would go before God and, or a defense lawyer would go before the judge and he would try to plead your innocence, Jesus stands before the Father and he pleads your guilt because you're guilty. You and I are guilty of all the sins that we have been charged of. So instead of trying to plead your innocence, Jesus pleads your guilt. But in the place of your guilt, he says, Father, I am righteous. I lived the life that they should have lived. So then he pleads his righteousness and says, will you accept my payment? And the father looks at Jesus and he says, yes, absolutely. And we're freed from the penalty of death. That's the picture of Christ being our advocate And the way that he is able to be our advocate, as John continues, is because he is righteous. If Christ isn't fully righteous, he's not able to go before us and to plead our innocence. Let's keep going here. Who is he? He is our advocate. Question three. What has he done? Verse 2a, continuing on, John says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And that's a big, scary word, isn't it? That's just like, the word sounds gnarly. What, whoa, what is that? The propitiation for our sins. But John continues, he talks about how Christ earns the right to be able to stand before the Father and to plead our innocence. And it's the work that he accomplishes when he propitiates sin from sinners. To be able to understand this, just a quick history on what Christ has done. If you remember, 
journeying back to Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve. And what happens is the deceiver comes in and they sin. And from the moment that they sin, we know that we have been given over to the sin nature. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives us His moral law and He helps us to see how far we have transgressed, how sinful we have become. But in order for God to have a relationship with sinners, He gives us blood sacrifices. We know that blood sacrifices don't fully deal with sin because we have to continue to do them over and over. But then in the New Testament, God reveals a plan, a plan that He has been foretelling all along that He's going to send His Son, Jesus, that's going to come in the world. And when Jesus comes into the world, this is what He does. Follow me here. Jesus lives the life that you and I should have lived. In Romans chapter 5, it talks about how because of the sin of Adam, all have become unrighteous, all have gone astray. There is condemnation on us. But Jesus comes and He lives the life that Adam should have lived and He lives the life that you and I should have lived. But then He does something beautiful. He dies the death that you and I should have died in our place. So as Jesus is hanging there on the hill of Golgotha, what happens in those moments where God turns away from His Son and Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is pouring out His wrath against sin on His Son. So in that moment, Jesus is bearing our sins on His body. Our sins have been imputed to Him. And He's receiving the wrath of God. That is the picture of what propitiation is. Jesus goes before us and He deals with the wrath of God on our behalf. So now, for followers of Christ, the wrath no longer stands. The wrath has been removed. Is that a good thing? Yes. Amen. Jesus Christ makes the payment that you and I should have made by dealing with the wrath of God and by removing the stain of sin, by receiving in Himself the punishment for our sins. Now, some of you are sitting here tonight and you're saying, whoa, wait a second. I want to know God but I'm not interested in pursuing this God if He's a God of wrath. May I encourage you with something tonight? Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. If you're struggling with this picture of God needing to deal with sin and being wrathful towards sinners because they had broken His moral law, I want you to see something that's beautiful. God is a God of wrath. He's not wrathful towards people in and of themselves. He's wrathful towards sin because He's a righteous God. He can have no relationship with sin. If my son walked into this room right now and he spat in my face in front of all of you and I did nothing about it, I never corrected him for it, 
I would not be a loving father. A loving father deals with sin. But at the same time that God is wrathful about sin, there's something else beautiful about God. If you're saying, I'm struggling with following a God that has wrath. Can you check out another picture of God? 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for sin. Did you get it? God is wrathful towards sinners because in so many words we have spit in His face because we have not chosen to glorify Him with our lives. So He's just. He deals with sin. You want to serve a God of justice. But at the same time, He's full of love. Because did you see who deals with the wrath? God. God sends His Son to make payment for the wrath that you and I deserve as sinners. Friends, if that's not a God of love, I don't know what love looks like. That is sacrifice. God is a just God full of light, but in order to be full of light, He can have no relationship with sin at all. And so if God is going to have a relationship with us, He must deal with sin. And so His plan to deal with sin is by sending His own Son, His only Son, to be the payment for sin on the cross. On the cross, Jesus bears our sin in His body and He deals with it. God removes the wrath that He has for sinners by sending His Son. He puts that wrath on Jesus and if you've received Him, if you've accepted Him into your heart and your life, and you're following Him, then the wrath is no longer on you. It's a really crazy, complex term called double imputation. Our sin is imputed into Christ on the cross, but then His righteousness is put into us. And God looks at us, and He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's good news. That's the gospel. Now, understanding what propitiation is, there's something else that we need to understand. The next part of this text gets really tricky. There have been a plethora of disagreements over this. In fact, even within our own body, I've had the opportunity to sit down with people and talk about what John is saying here in this passage In verse 3, what has He done? He has made payment for sin. That's the picture of propitiation. God removing His wrath. But what has He not done? Verse 2b, And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, in order to get a full picture of what I just said, let me read verse 2 together in its entirety. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only, or not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, 
understanding the definition of propitiation that I just gave to you, that God, by the work of His Son, Jesus on the cross, looks at sinners that have received Christ and He removes the wrath from them that God has stored up towards sin, is what John's saying here is that God has removed the wrath from all sinners by saying that He is their propitiation, not just for us, but for the whole world. Has God removed the wrath from all people for sin? That's an important question, is it not? That's something that we need to know. Because if John is saying that, this is serious stuff. So let's take a journey. And I only tonight, as we look at this, I only am going to use the writings of John. The whole of scriptures is filled with this teaching. But tonight, I want to try to help you to understand what John is saying in this passage and what he's not saying in this passage. Check this out. John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. And just look at it up on the screen. The Father loves the Son... And He has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John is consistent. He says, whoever believes in the Son, the wrath of God will be removed and you will be able to have a relationship forever with God in eternity. You've accepted Christ and you've accepted His forgiveness. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God of God shall remain upon him. Clearly, if John is saying that if you have not accepted Christ, if you're not in a relationship with him, the wrath of God is still upon you. There is still going to be payment for sins of those who don't know Jesus. John is not saying that all the sins in all of the world for all time are automatically forgiven when Jesus dies on the cross. That's not what he's saying. If that is what he was saying, hell would be empty. Because there would be no payment. There would be no reason for people to suffer for the wrath of God in eternity forever. Forever. But through what John says in his own writings in Revelations, alright, and I want you to look at this next scripture. Revelations chapter 14 verses 9 to 11. John teaches that hell will surely be full of people that are receiving the wrath of God in themselves for eternity. He says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark in its name. John believes in a literal hell where there will be people suffering mostly because of their eternal separation from a loving God. And hell will be full. So what he's not saying is that all wrath has been removed from all people by the sacrifice of Jesus. To know what he is saying, I want us to continue here. John chapter 10, verses 15 
to 16. I believe that when John says that he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for all of the world, when Christ dies on the cross and he propitiates sin, what he has done is he has made a way for sinners to be able to respond to God through His mercy and through His grace. But for all people, there are general benefits that we are able to receive by Christ's death. The very fact that God allowed the Son to come over the top of St. Charles in a city where people are living in unrighteousness is a benefit. That is a daily mercy that you and I are receiving because Christ has made a way for a time for Christians to go out through the power of God and to preach the gospel so that God's sheep will hear the word, they will respond, and they will receive Christ and the forgiveness that He's brought. So in a general sense, we have all received benefits from the mercy of Christ and through the propitiation of sin. But specifically, the propitiation of Christ for sinners is for the whole world of those who will respond. Those that He's called. It's specifically for them. In the sense, it's limited to them. Check out this passage. John chapter 10, verses 15 to 16. Just as the Father, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life, who does he lay down his life for? This is John writing. The same guy that said propitiation for sins of all the world is saying here that the Father, that by the Father Christ lays down his life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. See how Christ is so confident that they are going to listen to his voice? So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus Christ's propitiation for sinful man is specifically for those who will respond to the gospel message, for those he has removed the wrath of God. He has not removed the wrath of God from all, for those who will respond. Another passage from John in Revelations. Check out this last one. Revelations chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. Do you see the similarity this time between John's, John's writings here in 1 John? in his writings in Revelation. He's saying that across all of the world, in all of the nations, in every language, and in every tongue, there are people that Christ is calling that are going to respond to the message as it goes forth. For those people, Christ has propitiated their sin. He's taken God's wrath and He has removed it from them so they can be the righteousness of Christ. That's the power of the Gospel. That is what Jesus has done. If you are a believer here, there should be 
joy welling up in our spirits to see that Christ went on our behalf to make payment for the sins that you and I deserve to pay for. He's removed your wrath and he's restored you in your relationship to God. But here's the thing. And as I close tonight, this is what I want to say. Tonight, if you are a non-believer and you're here, I hope through this journey there's a few things that you have seen. A, that you're a sinner. In your life, it is full of lawlessness. You've been stealing. You've been lying. You've been full of anger. You've been a glutton. You've been engaged in sexual immorality. We're sinners. Guess what? If tonight you've come in and you don't know Christ and you say, yeah, that describes me, you're in good company. Because every single person here has struggled with those same things. We're all sinners. But the distinction between a believer and a non-believer is that by knowing Christ and seeing what He's done, by being our advocate, one day when we truly are in the eternal courtroom of God, will you have an advocate that will approach the bench in your defense? Will He go before the judge and say, look at this portfolio. Look at my work on Golgotha. This one's mine. Or will he say, depart from me? I never knew you for an eternity of receiving the wrath of God for your sin. Friends, it's not a game. One day we will all answer, do you know Christ? Has he removed the wrath of God from your life? Or are you going to pay for it in eternity? I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just being real. Let's pray together. Father, God, I pray that you would use the words of John to reveal to us the nature of our sin, the beauty of your sacrifice, and the way through your abundant love. Not only have you been just to reject sinners who have spat in your face, but you've also been loving by humbly paying the debt that we could not pay by sending your son, Jesus. God, for believers here, we thank you. God, and we praise you. In our hearts and in our lives, God, we want to worship you because of this abundant grace that you have for us. But God, I pray right now for those who are in this room, God, who have walked in blindly. God, they are full of lawlessness. Their lives are full of sin. God, I pray that you would open up their hearts, that you would remove the scales from their eyes, and God, you would reveal to them 
that you are God and that you've sent your son Jesus to remove the wrath for sin. God, do a work in us. Change our hearts. Change our minds. And help us to pursue not only justification, but sanctification. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Next few minutes, we're going to play a song as a video. And I just want to encourage you before we worship here tonight and before we go out to watch the words, to hear the music, and to deal with God in your hearts.